can you help your students to remember and understand what you're teaching? What features of memory and attention are most important to consider in different teaching modalities? Is memorization really a bad thing? These are some of the questions we will address in this episode of Learner Engagement Activated, the podcast that helps you take teaching and learning to the next level with the latest in research and applications on learner engagement for students at all ages, levels, and environments. This podcast hosts leaders in the field to bring you advice for how to increase learner engagement to improve student outcomes. I'm your host, Ann Fency, and in this episode, I speak with cognitive scientist Michelle Miller about strategies for improving memory and knowledge. Ready, set, activate. Michelle Miller is a professor of psychological sciences and president's distinguished teaching fellow at Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, Arizona. She is the author of Minds Online, Teaching Effectively with Technology, and her most recent book, Remembering and Forgetting in the Age of Technology, Teaching, Learning, and the Science of Memory in a Wired World. Michelle writes, teaches, and speaks about maximizing learning in today's technology-saturated and rapidly changing world. She has a gift for translating research and theory into practical classroom applications. Michelle Miller, welcome to our podcast. In your books, you do a lot to explain how learning happens in the brain, specifically around memory and attention. Um, Can you give us a quick summary of what educators should know about how knowledge is formed and the role of attention in learning? Right. And this is just such a rich topic once you get into it. And this is why it's one of my favorite things to talk about with fellow educators and why it's so great to be able to share on the podcast today. So a big thank you up front and a thank you in advance for all your, your listeners who are definitely engaged educators themselves if they're here in this space. Well, I'm so, totally going to geek out over all of your answers. <laughs> oh, fantastic. I mean, that's what we're always here to do. This is, this is just our, this is our isn't it? Um, And you know, because there's so much energy around the topic of memory and knowledge, I mean, in talking to educators over the years, I've always just noticed this, this change come over the room, especially early on when I first started, like you said, geeking out because I'm a cognitive psychologist, right? So memory is like our big topic. It's not the only thing we study, but it's just really launched, uh, really launched us as a field to start systematically figuring out what is this? How does our mind take in and uh, and uh, encode, as we call it, information? How do we get it back out? What's the role that that plays in all kinds of other processes and so on? Now, when I talk to educators, I always, uh, will almost always like to start with, um, you know, what's your idea of what memory or knowledge even is? Because, I mean, gosh, if, if cognitive psychologists and neuropsychologists only still have a pretty tenuous conception of what memory is, despite all the research, well, it stands to reason that the rest of us are probably, you know, using some kind of some metaphors to get at that. And that's not a bad thing, but we should really reflect on what that is and see if we can bring it in line more with some of the kind of exciting developments in the field. So um, common ways of thinking about kind of knowledge in the head, in the mind, is first of all the classic container or conveyor belt kind of kind of idea. Um, so uh, you know you have some place in your head. You know maybe you even call it like it's like a hard drive. It's like a filing cabinet. It's it's like a this or like that. It's like a shipping container, and you just kind of put things in there because you want them, and they and they stay in there. Um, and that's how knowledge is formed. Was, my husband used to say it was like a card catalog from the library. And <laughs> You only had so many cards in there, so he didn't want to fill up his 
his memory was like useless information. Whereas like, I was always spouting all kinds of useless facts. And- <laughs> So don't you love is it there like a certain number of cards in there or uh boy I don't think so and as a former library page myself my high school job um, shout out to the real librarians out there yes I hear you on the card catalogs and I know it, it's it's tempting to think of it that way but this brilliant memory scientist Jim Nairn said years ago uh, I think it was at a talk I saw here something like that he said you know asking how many memories you're brain can hold is like saying how many uh musical compositions can a piano play oh okay boom all right so that changes everything when you think of it not as like oh i'm gonna you know put it down and stick it someplace but this is something my mind does right it's not a place in the head it's a capacity your mind has and of course you know the other metaphor that flies around a lot and actually um the cognitive psychologist or scientist uh, Dan Simons did a fantastic survey on this uh, a few years ago. I talk about it in my most recent book. Um, it, the idea that it's a recorder, <laughs> too. So yeah. you say, well, you know, let's make it higher tech. It's not a card catalog, it's a video camera. <laughs> uh, and of course, the last 25 years of memory research has just shown time and again, it's not that we're worse than a recorder, but we just work very differently. Mm-hmm. And it comes back again to, we, we take in um, not just kind of what's in front of us or, oh, here's something my teacher said would be important three years from now, drop it in the catalog. Our minds are, are taking in uh, information and when they're taking in our sensations and our experiences um, in a very selective way. Um, or here's yet another a little metaphorical conception that's a, a better one uh, from, from Daniel Willingham. Uh, another, you know, brilliant cognitive and educational psychologist. And he said, memory is the residue of thought. So it's like, it's more an outcome of like something that you you did, but really coming back to it as that sort of memories, there's an adaptation, something your mind does, not a place in your mind. And it kind of flows from that, that knowledge formation and learning is not some kind of artificial add-on or just, a, you know, something you, you sort of dip into if you absolutely have to. So the more research we do in cognitive psychology and cognitive science, the more we realize that it's it's actually really tied up with the ability to think, um, the ability to solve problems in an area. And there's even some interesting new research kind of suggesting it, it might help uh, build intrinsic interest. So all these things are part of memory and memory so kind of interwoven into all those things. And um, so, so that's a big one that educators should know. And I also think that, you know, there's some real downsides to, um, I think, what has become a, a, a somewhat of a familiar idea these days to many educators. And, and it's it comes from a good place. If this is the engaged, you know, folks who are really passionate. And, and they say, well, for factual information, um, they can always look it up. Like, you know, what's yep. the cutoff for for alpha if you're doing statistics or something like that um so all that 
that's essentially the offloading idea, right? Uh, don't put it in your head, which maybe comes back to that metaphor of, oh no, you don't want to run out of space. So yeah, don't yeah. store it in your head go to your phone and we won't need to know things in the future and because knowledge is tied up with all these other things you can right away say well maybe that idea is a little problematic um and so i'd like to talk to educators and say well in pretty much every discipline every engaged educator i talk to if i say if they're you know what's the back of the hand knowledge what's the things that you don't need to be diving for your phone for if you're going to go on in this field think about those um and for those practical reasons or and and we also are there's more emerging research i talk about some of it in my book uh my last book um remembering and forgetting in the age of technology but this research is continuing to unfold on offloading itself now it's not that depending on your phone like destroys your memory or something like that across the board there's no evidence right now that it does um but offloading yeah your phone might crash it but and there's also this this phenomenon that happens when we assume that we can look it up later like uh, okay there's this little thing in statistics i'm going to be able to find that always if I think that, um, I'm less likely to store it on my own, which again, your memory is, is being really adaptive. That's a really smart thing for an efficient selective memory system to do. But over time, you can see how that kind of could undermine you yeah. um, in an area. So you shouldn't be ashamed to ask that of students. And it doesn't have to be, you know, the sole end of what you're doing, but it's a great starting point. Hmm. Cool. So, um, I'm thinking though that some of these things might work differently or we should be concerned about different things um, depending on our modality. Like some things might be more important around memory intention when you're in physical presence with someone, or maybe there's something around attention when you're joining remotely in Zoom or learning asynchronously. Like what should we think about like from a you know, a memory and attention kind of standpoint about teaching in different modalities. Right, right. Um, and and that's something that I've, uh, another touch point that I've, I've loved to reach out to fellow engaged educators about. Um, there, there does seem to be something about the people who want to be the early adopters um, and want to try these things. Um, that said, in the past few years, I mean, of course, we don't have to belabor the point, but this has been something that we've we've had to um, had to explore. And so, you know, it makes sense to say, well, how does this intersect with technology, and especially with this topic of of attention, which uh, is so interwoven in. And just as you know, to kind of circle back to that for a second too, uh, just to emphasize, pretty much the the going, you know, thinking in cognitive science is that you do need focused attention to so-called encode or create new knowledge it doesn't it doesn't just happen in the in the background uh osmosis doesn't work osmosis that's for chemistry not for learning um (laughs) yeah Uh, and and you know we can laugh but it's true our students kind of have have heard some things of like well if you sort of put it on a post-it note and walk by it you'll get it and not if you're not paying attention to it and we we will do things like you know put it in the syllabus put it put information here or there and say oh it was in front of them why didn't they get it so so that is really really important um 
So, so yeah, attention is kind of another sort of important feel for, for learning. And we've, the more we research this, the more we realize too, attention and especially like working memory, like immediate memory, mm -hmm. those two things just really can't be disentangled. They really work in tandem. Mm -hmm. So it's important stuff. So thinking about, all right, what modality am I teaching in and how's that going to introduce some differences here? So I tend to, to start from a really kind of practical or, or pragmatic point. You know, I, I always kind of, I, I, I back off a little bit when I hear like, well, how does the brain function when it's in Zoom versus when it's in the world? Like, eh, it's, it's the same brain the whole time. <laughs> yeah, so, so really coming at it in a way that's maybe not philosophical or theoretical, um, they don't have to be that different. I mean, after all, you know, learning is still going to be about changing the mind and changing the brain based on what your goals are, engaging in effortful activities, um, activating the purpose and goals of like, why do I want to know this? Mm -hmm. That's what will trigger that. Okay, so that said, you know, same brain in any modality, there is, of course, there's less ready-made engagement in online settings, at least with the kind of tools and, and techniques that, as we know them right now. Um, and you know, way before pandemic teaching was happen, uh, was happening. Um, I was writing like in my previous book, Minds Online, about how when it's a like an asynchronous class, part of it is is kind of the framework for what do I do next, right? Mm -hmm. um, and for our students, especially if they're fairly new to college. Um, and, you know, I'm talking mostly about college students here because that's where I'm from. But, uh, yeah, you know, college students, if, if nothing else, if I have no idea what this weird class from Dr. Miller is going to be about or what she wants, at least I can go to the room, sit down, look around me. And those, those social cues are very attention uh, grabbing for a social species like ourselves. And I can kind of see what are other people doing. I can read the emotional tenor of my instructor and, and so on. Uh, none of this is impossible online. I mean, as a fellow person who's passionate about online course design, you know, that's what we do. We think of good ways to convey who we are and, and really make clear what do you do next? How do you catch up if you need to? Um, what's expected? But th that is something that's that's not there in an online um, uh, course. Now, there are other things in online courses that are less or not really as easy to do uh, in uh, in face to face. So it's not, you know, let's look at online as less less than necessarily than yeah. than, than face to face. Um, and you know, when we're now when we're remote, this this new which has become so much more common. Um, we're remote and synchronous you're kind of two places when you're online and I think all of those who've had the uh you know camera off webinar where we're like eh, I'm gonna fold these this laundry we know that right and there's also probably a little bit of cognitive load or kind of you know extraneous demands on us mm -hmm. that are happening just because it's weird we're talking to somebody who's not who's not there and um maybe there's controls and things like that that we also have have to manage so i think no surprise here though what is kind of partially the, the antidote to some of those potential pitfalls of just like i'm not even with you even though i'm supposed to be with you synchronously or i'm online and i don't know what to do so i'm going to shut the computer and do something else yeah. um 
you know, engagement and frequent check-ins, right? Um, so I, I think, especially if we draw on our own experience, having been to, to webinars, uh, presentation and PowerPoint is fine. It just it's, uh, becomes particularly important to get uh, engagement up front to say, okay, what are we here to do? Who's here? What do you want to know? Um, the chat stream can kind of be very difficult on us as the leader or instructor to manage mm -hmm. low cognitive load, <laughs> overload, <Yeah. Yeah. laughs> but, um, but if you can keep kind of at least keep it positive and keep it rolling, isn't that, I think we've also been in those really good webinars where it's like, oh, we're taking in sort of what the speaker's saying. Uh, we have an opportunity to contribute. We're kind of making those connections and so forth. So those are affordances of that that medium that- uh, I love that about, about webinars and workshops online or that I can engage in these conversations in the chat while I'm also, I mean, it's kind of like multitasking, but mm -hmm. it, I do feel so much more engaged. Like I, I have ADHD. I have a hard time paying attention to like speakers, you know, and especially in like a, you know, in a large place, you know, with lots of people, you know, I get, I get distracted, but I actually find that on the computer, all of my in, you know, my sensory input is all in one screen and you know I can kind of focus on one thing I actually focus better in my online webinars and workshops and things like that than I do sometimes in person sometimes I'm just sitting there and I'm like five minutes later I'm like wait what are they talking about because <laughs> my mind has gone somewhere else and yeah, I'm sure I have no idea what you're talking about yes and it, as a as a fellow individual who's proudly, you know, sporting the same kind of uh, neural and, and uh, cognitive characteristics. Um, I, I say I definitely hear you on that. And, and I like the, the, the kind of mm, underlying assumption here. Again, not like, well, it's not great, but let me try to make my class as close as, you know, replicate the whole thing yeah. in this weird medium to say, well, let's say somebody's socially anxious. I mean, now hand raising works very differently. You yeah. can physically have lots of hands up at once. I mean, did you know <laughs> your digital hand doesn't get tired? <laughs> um, and it kind of reminds me me too of something, you know, born early, I think it was a couple semesters ago in one of my seminars, it was hybrid and it was this kind of funky situation where you've got a third of the people who are here in the class and you never really know who or how many and then you've got a two-thirds of the people who are remote and yeah I mean that was okay and it, it gave us a, it we could carry on but one of the things that I hit on was like okay well we have uh, this class was really about these intensive oftentimes small group discussions and then share out of you know, pretty intensive research articles where it's like okay we need to take these articles apart I said, oh, you know, I can put people in those online breakouts. It's <laughs> like, all right, where did they go? What's going on? I don't know. Um, and, and so I, I made these Google Docs, a familiar technology, pretty basic, right? But I made Google Docs for each day that had the seed questions in them. So again, you've got it in front of you. You don't have to search back and go, oh, what did she say? Uh, I don't have a chalkboard in front of you after all. Yep. And I and I could see these comments unfolding. And I just had a way to have people just drop into the right part of the sheet. And after a time or two, the in-person group said, well, why 
we're having to like write these things down to make notes. Can't we just go in the Google Doc too? And I was like, all right, well, this is weird, but let's do it anyway. I mean, you picture our classroom during at least that part of the class meeting, people around their computers. I'm like sitting six feet away and I'm commenting on their comments and I'm able to survey everybody's everything at once. And it was really cool because unlike a face-to-face -face discussion, we've got a record now. We've got, you could go back and say, because the um, exam take-home essay questions were tied to those discussions, that was probably a really good thing. I know for me and for the students to go back and say, well, yeah what was even said. So that's the kind of way I think that we can we can tackle these things. We've got the cognitive processes in the, you know, is these driving principles like, yeah, they have, to, let's have people engage. Let's have them actually working on something and dipping in and out of active engagement and presentation if we're gonna do that. Um, but without, you know, just saying, well, uh, everything goes, goes away. And then it, when you're in a different modality and then just being really practical and creative to say, how could we elicit these? And mm. when you do, you can come up with some really neat surprises, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so one thing that I'm curious about is that like you're in a traditional classroom and you've got all of these visual indicators of attention and confusion in front of you, you know, but you don't necessarily have those same ones if you're in a Zoom room or if it's asynchronous, like you can't see their, their faces if they're asynchronous. Um, if they're in Zoom, maybe they're making eye contact through the camera because they're looking at their Facebook page, not, or, you know, Instagram page or whatever. They're not actually looking at, um, you know, what's going on in class. So like, how do you help students maintain their, their, their focused attention during these, you know, ways of learning remotely and asynchronously um, that you're, you're not there really, you know, you're not physically present there. How do you help them? Yeah. Yeah. And there's a, you know, there's a couple things going going on here I mean there's the attention connection and then there's the feedback and yeah and the well, what about me as the instructor uh what how am I supposed to to do what I need to do to to try to tailor this and, and know if it's going off the rails or or not um and and I think too we what I what's implicit here is to kind of steer people away from this sort of you know never-ending chase of eyes on me and and these superficial indications of attention which mm. frankly can be sometimes a little bit more about our ego and less about the <laughs> students actual learning I mean you mentioned the zoom thing and the, I think we've kind of seen the the rise and fall of the like should they have their cameras on a uh, great uh, great debate um, and as you're pointing out, you can you can even do that and <laughs> looking very intently into so the intense. camera. Yeah. That doesn't mean that they're absorbing anything. It it is a losing game, and I think it replicates a losing game that we've seen in face to face classrooms too. That I talk about in the latest book, the 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 great laptop wars, which seemed a little skirmishes of that just keeps seem to pop up. Of oh no, if there's a laptop, if there's a device then they're not paying attention to me and the way to which may be true but the way you know the implication being well if I just make a rule 
we'll just make a rule that you have to X, Y, and Z and no A, B, or C. Um, and as I talk about in the book, that that is, you know, even the research, which people say, well, but research shows, you know, <laughs> you're on a laptop, you won't learn. And there's several lines of research there, and some of them are very good, but there's also been a lot of replications, and it is just wildly misinterpreted. So, I mean, for folks who want to kind of see me untangle that specifically, um, that's that's something to hit. But I think it does kind of come back to that that root of, of engagement there. So what are some, some practical things? I think in a synchronous uh, Zoom-type environment, um, remote environment, I like to normalize and make the world okay for emojis. Yeah. <laughs> I've been a long time. I like these days, I feel very vindicated because I've been in favor of the emoji for a long time. I think they're fantastic and they don't need to replace. It's not like we're going to put some, some smileys and, and things instead of when you really do want students to write something that's more um, that's more in-depth and reasoned but I've just loved it when and, and I set the tone I, I I'm throwing smileys and thumbs up in there and that sets the tone for students to do that too so I know for example when they're kidding saying oh this again or you know or, or I didn't I didn't get it I, I can distinguish a little bit better are they are they serious mm -hmm. or not and, and here too let's not forget in the face-to-face -face classroom not all students are equally facially <laughs> expressive um and you know you could think the class is doing this or the class is feeling that and it's you may just be it's really the <laughs> three or four people who you're kind of glancing at the most so uh let's not let's not idealize that so some other ways to uh to have the feedback i mean here again is where those frequent short small engagement exercises are so important so definitely a student who remote or in person would not raise their hand when i say okay do we all under we you know we know how to discuss statistical significance let's go on to the next thing they may not raise their hand and they may be or at least in their own minds they may be so far behind or like i'm i'm like so far behind i i don't even want to say it they may mm -hmm. be socially anxious yeah. But if then I introduce a small groups, low stakes exercise, and then I again normalize and say, okay, and you throw up your virtual or real hand um, for me to come in and run down what the directions are, what the concepts are, I'm, I'm happy to do that. So in that small group environment and discussion, especially if you've got a good classroom atmosphere already established where we're all safe and on the same page working together, then I can kind of turn to my my next person and say like I have no idea how to even define statistical significance let alone do this exercise <laughs> so I like to to have a couple of different points of entry as far as student understanding mm -hmm. and those that's another way that those exercises can do double duty um, for several beneficial things mm. so it's, it sounds like getting things out of the students is really important you know, it's not just you presenting information to them, it's finding out from them, whether it's through an emoticon or whether it's um, talking to each other in a small group. Um, so, which also, um, as I was learning about retrieval practice, is really fascinating that learning isn't really about getting the information in, it's about getting it out. It's when you retrieve it, that's when you start to remember it. And so, um, I'm, I'm fascinated with retrieval practice, but when um, most people hear about it, they just think of testing. 
And, you know, they, they think of it as like, okay, well, memorizing things or, you know, skill drilling and things like that. And, you know, we've, we've got such a negative perception of testing as like a bad thing. Um, so is, well, is testing bad and is memorization bad? Yeah. Talk about, yeah, the, the M word, right? And it does, it just activates a whole kind of this whole universe of, of these negative associations. And I think absolutely, I mean, if you had to visualize it, I've got some, you know, <laughs> um, my own sort of Wikimedia Commons images that I've chosen over the years of just what comes to your mind. And it's this students are in the, in the rows and it's black and white. And there's the, the, teacher the front and they're you know stomping around <laughs> ruler in hand or some some horrible thing <laughs> um and it, once again it comes from a good place we don't want that we don't want this drilling atmosphere and quite reasonably um as i talk about with faculty too quite reasonably if, if you're familiar with like the banking model of education it's like oh and that activates this idea that oh my value as the teacher is like i know things you're the student you don't know anything and i'm just going to transfer you know from the container in my head to the container in your head and we see that's wrong on many many levels um no it as the teacher nice if it yeah. were way, but it but it doesn't <laughs> it would be nice and we wouldn't we wouldn't need schools um yeah but okay well what is my value as a teacher to to, to set up something that 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 i know is going to be effective a retrieval practice exercise to choose what I want you to retrieve because I know this is the critical stuff um, to talk about it and to motivate and give that feedback. But yeah, so why why is it the M word and, and uh, how can we start to address that idea and maybe gently dismantle it a little bit? Um, recognizing again, there's some there's some important things that underlie that. Um, I mean, you could just say, well, okay, if memory is a normal kind of, it is ordeal, it's or is is a demeaning to you as a person, then why is Jeopardy such a popular game? I mean, people will literally play with just memory. Um, we we have other there's memory championships and, and so on. Um, but but in all seriousness, really thinking back to the framing and the stakes. So what makes it different than a drill exercise that we either have an idea of or we actually experienced ourselves or have seen. So, you know, when I think back to some of my less good experiences with memorization as a kid, um, it, it came back to the why and the how, right? Why are we doing this? Mm -hmm. And how am I supposed to be successful? And a little wrinkle here, I'll, I'll just kind of share, is it uh, due to my personal background, um, I come from a, a, a family that's deeply involved in Montessori and which is oh. fantastic um, but yeah. that was my that was my education until I was um, I think in fourth grade and then just through different circumstances really abruptly made a tradition and transition into a much more traditional school it was a great school but here I mean boy I was a deer in the headlights I'd never had homework I'd never had any of this explained to me so I was you know, this, this really stuck with me for this reason. So I think back, for example, to, okay, here's your homework for the next week or whatever, memorize the state capitals. All right. And 
think a lot of us did that as kids. I don't think it's inherently a, a bad thing. And it could be a really actually fun thing and an informative thing to say, oh, well, how what works, what doesn't. But I didn't get like, how, why am I doing it? And I really got no tutoring on how. So mm-hmm. I did what any naive learner would do. I kind of looked at the list. I was like, okay, I'm going to read this and read it again. And I think I got it. Yeah, I got it nailed. It's super. And you can probably say that went. Yeah. So uh, just total, total destruction. Uh, Oh, the humanity when I took the test in school. And what was, what was uh, the reaction? Well, why didn't you study? What does that even mean? Um, Why, you know, why can't you do this? Right. Mm -hmm. So it's not so much that middle part where I'm trying to retrieve and go, ooh, you know, what is the capital of Delaware? it's what sets it up at the beginning and what happens at the end. And that book ending is something that we, especially in higher education, we have a lot of discretion on this and it's never too late to really turn it around on its head. So I, I, I do, it doesn't take a lot of time, but I do have a lot of emphasis early on in my classes to say, why do we have a weekly reading quiz before we even, like, you even know this stuff very well? Why does it happen all the time? What's going on? Um, I, I say, well, this, here's this exciting retrieval practice effect. Cool. And recently, I've been said to students, and, and boy, they loved it. They, they just lit up when I said, well, this, we really do the, the intricate parts of these chapters and these weekly reading quizzes, which aren't worth very much. Anyway, I don't have to be like testing you on it everything on an exam on a higher stakes exam early on and you get some feedback and they're going this is fantastic and so there is um you know now some evidence some great studies out there that show that this this sort of like getting students transparency and getting students on board really works Mm -hmm. and it has long-lasting effects not just in like say my class so there's some evidence that when students experience retrieval practice in this way like framed for learning Mm -hmm. low stakes you didn't do well try it again we'll see how it works out when that happens they are number one more um, likely to use retrieval practice adopt it for themselves in their future study you gotta love that right um and that they may even have less test anxiety and anxiety about the sort of testing situation uh over time Hmm. both of these things sort of on the face of it are very, very logical, but they're things that we don't always, you know, they they do get lost in that idea, like, well, my classes are not about memorization. Um, So those are, those are some things that I I really like to to put in front of faculty to challenge that idea. And again, to emphasize, this doesn't mean that, okay, you know, you memorized all the names of these great researchers, so we're done with psychology 101, no critical thinking, the end. <laughs> these are the basis for those things. These are the yeah. basis, not uh, not an end to themselves. Yeah, yeah. I remember um, one of my uh, kids' teachers explaining to me why memorizing math facts was so important. It's not because, yes, they can do it with a calculator, but once they go to solve a problem, if they don't have to think about the computation, then they're freeing up their brains to think about the problem. And, you know, so that's that's made such a difference in what I tell my own students about why it's important to remember some of these details is because it frees up your brain to then think bigger things. Oh, I, I love it. That's so, you know, and that's such... 
an eloquent and very student focused way of doing this. And again, what could be farther from that, you know, mean teacher in a bow tie with a ruler at the front of the black and white class of, um, hey, I, I care. And this is going to make life easier for you down the road. Yeah. Um, and here's why. And, you know, once again, not to, I mean, well, I'm just going to tap back into that experience. Wow, it's bringing up for me. Uh, that was part of it as well. So because I had this kind of discontinuity in my education, just two, you know, philosophies without a, a real bridge in between, I really, I did not memorize the, the uh, um, multiplication tables or basic subtraction facts, mm -hmm. actually. And I will tell you firsthand, as a kid, that is precisely what happened. So I was just, I'm, I'm struggling to kind of get the conceptual stuff. And teachers at the end of the day are just saying like, well, all we see is your problems are wrong. And I'm, as far as I know, I'm trying. And it led to an enormous domino effect in my mathematics education. Huh, One that right. actually ended up getting me because we did tracking back then. I'm that old. Uh, I got tracked out of the science classes that I wanted. It really did alter, you know, the course of my education and yeah. really shut down a lot of options for me. Uh, now, when I got into statistics and, and that kind of stuff, I could kind of have a fresh start. And I'm like, oh, I can, I can think mathematically. And I had an opportunity to build up that basic knowledge um, more from the get-go but but yeah take it take it from two who know um, it is it, it is not doing learners a favor to say yeah just skip over this yeah. uh, when you know they're going to need it later on yeah yeah all right so now I have three questions that we ask all of our guests um, so first what is a major barrier to learner engagement that you have experienced well you know it one of these, it does have to do really with, once again, the, the kind of articulation between uh, cognition, thinking, um, and the, the more emotional and motivational and affective sides of, of learning. So a, a major barrier to learner engagement um, is straight overwhelm. And I think uh, for many of us, that's a part of our development as teachers is to say, well, we start out kind of taking it personally when a student is disengaged or they, you know, they pulled out their phone in the middle of class. Oh no, how terrible. And <laughs> what an affront to me personally. Um, and then we, we start to get to talk to them um, and say, oh my gosh, well, yeah, I have a partner who has a high risk pregnancy and they're at home and I pulled out my phone to, to check that out. And, and yeah, I've, I, I'm working this many shifts at work and mm -hmm. other classes with, which are very inflexible, or maybe I got put in too many classes, I got a little bit of, you know, maybe not great advising and now I'm in way over my head. Mm -hmm. And for any of us, when we're in over our head, we're not in that receptive state to be uh, attentive and, and, and motivated uh, learners. And that's not something about us or our personality or, or disposition. It's a function of, of what happens. We kind of have too many, too many moving pieces at once. Um, and quite frankly, you know, fear, I, I, part of that whole uh, issue we have around memory and memorization that bad picture is because it's also a very fearful picture mm -hmm. uh it's not a playful open engaged picture um and that's you know it's a tough one our our students come to us with the educational trauma that they have 
they do. Um, and we can't rewrite that history for them. We can't avoid perpetuating it. And we can try to be really obvious and upfront that, hey, this is what I'm about. And I take this work incredibly seriously, but um, I'm, I'm not here to, to put you down or, or kind of attribute anytime you fall short to attribute it to, to kind of the, the worst thing as um, uh, offhand. So so those are some general things. Um, looking at course policies, so I've written um, past year or so a few piece, shorter pieces that, that really talk about deadlines and mm -hmm. how I've been experimenting with, if not abolishing all deadlines and we yep. throwing it all to the wind, um, having a much more nuanced view and, and not using course points as always the incentive or frankly, the punishment that yeah. gets students motivated to do the work. So I think when we do that, um, there's just such a relaxing effect. And after all, if we are there and saying, well, the work has to be in at 11.59 on Friday or zero points. <laughs> I mean, if I think my learning activities are there, it is a learning activity that's supposed to help them retain and, and remember and get comfortable using the material well they have no incentive to do it uh or they're doing it in a frantic like oh my god it's seven minutes to the deadline get through it get through it get through it. then i mean all of that is is lost it really is so all of these things can work together i think very holistically um not knowing where to start, not having a structure to place things in. I mean, that's another fact of human information processing and memory. If and there's plenty of classic studies where, you know, if you walk into a situation and you're like, I don't really know what the overarching concept or message here is, you can't take it in. You, you have to kind of piece it together and it just overwhelms you. We have an amazing capability to take in tons of information without sitting and rehearsing or you know sweating bullets if we understand it and we're like oh this is why i need this so making sure that even things like course policies like we do we do a lot of quiz games as you might imagine in my classes but we do them on the on the syllabus um to again surfaces questions students might not even realize they have or feel uncomfortable asking um and that helps us you know, take a little bit of that uncertainty and, and stress out um, and always foregrounding the, the why, you know, again, I, I may not be able to get all my students excited about, you know, inferential statistics, research methods, uh, technology in the mind or the other things that I, that I teach about. Uh, but I'm really, really gonna, I'm, I'm going to try and if nothing else, students have the opportunity in my class to say, yeah, I, I walked away with some hard knowledge yeah. and I did some tough things and I uh, set out to succeed and I did. So that's, those are some uh, barriers and some things that I try to do to get around those. Yeah, great. So my next question is about the future now. So what should we start thinking about or exploring in our discussions on learner engagement that isn't fully being addressed yet? Ah, okay, right. And and this is this is a good one. Uh, not just because of this, you know, massive backdrop of change, but also because by now we have such great evidence for things like retrieval practice and uh, depth of processing, getting students, you know, grappling with material in really uh, difficult and you know challenging ways. We there's some things that we we kind of know. So what do we do next? Um, I've, I've been very excited by um, work that keeps pushing on, again, the how, you know, not just like, okay, now we know retrieval practice is good, it blows doors off of things like rereading and recopying your notes word for word, 
all things, by the way, that your students probably have adopted as effective study strategies, not because something's wrong with them, but that's what they've experienced and been told to do, possibly. Um, but saying, all right, so if that's the case, your students are kind of, they don't know this stuff and we know this stuff. How do we, how do we bridge that? So, uh, or you think about me, that, that fourth grade kid is like, uh, uh, what do I do with this list of capitals? Can you help me out here? Yes. So there's, uh, I really like some recent work that's come out from um, Mark McDaniels, brilliant mm -hmm. psychologist and his uh, longtime collaborator, Gil Einstein. And they have like a new framework. Uh, it's got a little acronym and everything, but basically it's about overcoming this thing that happens all the time in psychology, just knowing, oh, I should do this to not that, just knowing that yeah. it's not enough to really put yeah. it into practice, right? <laughs> Who yeah. knew? Yeah, we see it a lot. Um, but they say, which what we really need to do now that we kind of have these non-controversial principles of effective study to, to not just tell students like, okay, do this, not that because research, yeah. but to persuade them because mm -hmm. they, yeah, as good critical thinkers are like, well, you say it, but I, I don't know, I reread and it feels like it's working. Mm. You tell me I should yep. stop doing that. So you have to have some interactive demonstrations and also get students themselves reflecting, you know, lead them into trying and planning to do it. So again, it's one thing to say, well, oh yeah, I'll, that, I'll totally do that next time. And then just get really specific and say, you know what, in my organic chemistry class, here's what I've been doing and here's some different things I'm going to try. And then I'm going to circle back and see whether, you know, Dr. Miller was right or full of it, you know, when she said <laughs> this. So I, I, I'm looking to have that develop. And, um, you know, and, and I, I've been doing this project um, called Attention Matters for years and years, which uh, is in a slightly different direction, but similar tack of, hey, did you know that uh, if you're on your phone during class, you don't learn by osmosis and here's some videos and some, you know, I try to bring in some demonstrations yeah, and yeah, so yeah. forth and that work, that's a, just an online module. So we've been able to actually get thousands of students across the curriculum to do this. So I want to see more of that. Um, yeah. I think that it continues to be uh, a delicate, sometimes fraught, but very interesting line of research on how to also reach our fellow faculty. Um, and, you know, that's what I'm, I, I'm passionate about doing, I love to do, uh, but I think more of us are talking about, you know, what are, what are the techniques for that? How, not just kind of creating persuasive communications, but uh, uh, uncovering uh, things like sometimes it's called neuromyths uh, or myths about learning, misconceptions about learning. I've been involved in a research project for some years now that look at those among different, not just instructors, but also staff and instructional mm -hmm. designers and higher education to say, what are they? And rather just sort of rolling in and saying, all oh, y'all are wrong about everything. Um, what are some kind of better and more productive ways to have that conversation? So, so that's what I think. Yeah, cool. So as we wrap up, my final question is, what is the one thing you want people to remember from our conversation about learner engagement? Okay, so you're going to just have to count this as one item. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay, let me see if I can try to wrap my arms around that up. I want you, if you're listening to this, I want you to reflect on what your learners your discipline, your institution, your specific learners, what should they know and be able to do? 
Mm -hmm. as, as a function of their engagement in your course. You're engaging them, you know, to what ends. And, and let those priorities drive your teaching. It, let them drive your technology choices um, and maybe move away from worrying about, you know, hierarchies or uh, worrying that, oh, you know, memory isn't a fit subject for serious teaching. It's necessarily going to be an anxiety provoking, you know, disengaging thing in your classroom. Mm -hmm. Get creative, look around. And once you, once you have those priorities in your mind, then everything opens up. Then you can say, well, are, are quizzes and quiz games a good fit for me and my style? Uh, should we have students trying to teach each other, which is also another great way to, you know, stimulate retrieval practice and memory. So what fires mm -hmm. you up as a teacher? Match that to your priorities and it's hard to go wrong. Mm -hmm. Yep. That is great advice. Yes. So, Michelle Miller, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation and great information about how we learn and how we can help our students to, to learn better too. Because, you know, uh, we could sometimes forget that, you know, we're teaching them content, but really we need to be teaching them how to be learners too. Absolutely. I could not agree more. And thank you so much for the opportunity to reach your listeners. Yeah, thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. Learner Engagement Activated is produced by the Learner Engagement Division of the Association for Educational Communications and Technology. This episode was hosted by Ian Fency with sound editing and production by Ian Fency. The music is from Purple Planet. Visit the Learner Engagement Division online at www.learnerengagement.org and find out more about the Association for Educational Communications and Technology at aect.org. 